Welcome to the Torah Teachers Roundtable, Apostolic Edition, with your hosts Rob Miller, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call. We hope you'll find this discussion entertaining, thought-provoking, and that above all, you'll be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself and see if these things be true. Hello, here's me. And this is Ken. Uh, stop it. I heard loud and clear, MP. Good. Thanks. Oh, there's MC. I heard you. And there's Hebrew Nation. All right. There's Hebrew Nation. Okay, we are finally here. Uh apologies, folks. This is once again, hey, you'll never guess. My favorite microshaft uh no- Non-tool uh, Skype has uh, has done it again, and basically just before airtime, it decided it was going to reload new software because it needed to improve our experience, and instead we got no experience. It didn't work at all, and uh, I've been uh, I've been 15 minutes trying to get on. Thankfully, Phil came on, and we uh, we finally got things running. But um, anyway, it's been kind of a mess. Let's just talk about. It. Let me say. Forty-two of the book of Ezekiel. Hey, how you doing? Um, so yeah, let's. Uh, Mark, I know you were uh, you were anxious to go back to where you where you thought you finished. So let me just say uh, good afternoon and uh, sorry for the late start. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about Ezekiel. All right, all right. Yeah, I'd like to get started back around verse right. five. That was yeah. where I left off, and uh, uh, and I'll cover us through about verse uh, twelve and hand it back over. So here we go. Do we want to read that first, Mark, uh, just to refresh the audience's memory? Verses 5 through 12. Verse 5? Yeah. All right. So it says, uh, talking about the, uh, the the temple that, as far as we can tell, has not been built. Now the upper chambers were shorter. The galleries took away space from them um, more than from the lower and middle stories of the building. If, in fact, they were in three stories and did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts, therefore the upper level was shortened more than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. And a wall, which was outside, ran parallel to the chambers at the front of the chambers toward the outer court. Its length was 50 cubits. The length of the chambers toward the the outer court, 50 cubits, whereas uh, that facing the temple, was one at the lower chambers was the entrance to the east side as one goes into them from the outer court. Also, chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court towards the east, opposite the separating courtyard and opposite the building. There was a wall and from here like the chambers which were toward the north, long and as wide as the others, and all their exits and entrances were according to plan. And And course, doors of chapel. There was a door in front of the wall, a bay directly in front of the wall toward the east. So let's pause there. Go ahead, MP. All right, here we go. Beginning in verse five, uh, which tells us that the walls were somewhat broader at the base and narrower at the top, which makes good sense to me. As high as the walls were, it would be pretty hard to get a grappling hook over the wall so an invader could sneak in by scaling the wall. But the walls do narrow a bit at the top, 
I expect that the walls were uh, absolutely perpendicular or slightly outleaning, you know, maybe at a degree or two, to the ground on the outside of the walls, and the narrowness was all from the inside. I also expect that the walls were narrower at the top by a cubit or two, and that the access to the top was much easier from the inside, perhaps even with metal steps embedded into the inner wall, so that the defenders could fight off or fire off uh, down at their potential invaders. The upper levels were probably living space for the Leviim, with any overflow going to the wet-behind-the-ears Kohanim, which is, I think, what verse 6 is telling us. Uh, for they were in three stories, but had, okay, all of that stuff. Uh, which the, And the pillars uh, that reinforced the courtyard walls were not as thick as the or as numerous as the ones in the cha- uh, chamber complex. The lower stories required more supportive pillars than the uppermost story, which had to support only the roof. That according to Stone's footnote on verse 6. Now, uh, these upper chambers were on top of all the rest, so the lower stories were also handling their weight. So they had to, they had to build the lower stories of the wall uh, that much uh, stronger because there was a lot more weight on top of them than there was on the upper story. All they had to worry about was a roof. Now, there were no pillars in on the, or on, rather, the slaughtering or roasting chambers in the main courtyard. There were four roasting chambers, one in each interior corner of the inner courtyard's walls, which were the outer walls that stood 50 cubits high, as discussed earlier. In all of this, the word utter in the KJV means outer, as the Tanakh says. Now, verses 7 through 12, I'll cover that and then I'll give it up. Uh, Verse 7 tells us that these walls were 50 cubits high, roughly 75 feet, and sheer, or even outward leaning, like I said, outside of the temple. An invader would need a catapult to throw a grappling hook over that wall. And one Israeli could just crawl around on the top of the wall and cut the ropes as the invaders reached the top. That invader would drop about 75 feet to his death, about six to seven feet from the base of the wall, if I'm reading this properly. I think the outside of the wall kind of leaned outward, okay, by probably uh, two or three cubits. So, verses 8 to 9 reiterate what has been said before, but I am not sure that the length of the inner courts are 50 cubits, because the entire length of the outer wall that the invaders would have to breach was 100 cubits inside, being 10 to 15 feet thick at the base. I may be reading this wrong, but the exterior of the temple walls may have measured 120 cubits. Maybe my scattered brain is just not getting it, but that's that's what I'm thinking. It's 100 cubits inside from from, uh, wall to wall, both ways, east, west, north, south. But it had to be probably 120 cubits on the outside. Anyway, verses 10 through 12, I think the description in verse 10 is speaking of the chambers, which I take to be the cooking chambers in the corners of the outer, the KJV says utter, courtyard. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. 
Verse 11 tells us that the passages in the north and south ends of the outer courtyard are identical to the northern courtyard, and that the same was true for the eastern and western courtyards. Mirror images of their opposite sides as it should be. Okay? Now, verse 12, Tanakh has a note quoting Rashi saying that the south chamber complex is symmetrical to the north chamber complex, which I assume was the case, and I assume the eastern and western walls were also symmetrical. All four chambers where the slaughter of the offerings was done, uh, the, the northeast chamber, um, um, the northwest chamber, and like that, there are four of them surrounding the actual uh, altar in the middle of the, of the thing. Um, verse 11 tells us that the passages in the north and south ends of the outer courtyard are identical to the northern courtyard, and that the same was true for the eastern and western courtyards. Mirror images of, the op, of, their, uh, of their opposite sides as it should be. Now verse 12, Tanakh, has the following quote, uh, a note quoting Rashi saying that the south chamber complex is symmetrical to the north. Ch I've already read that, haven't I? Anyway, all four chambers where the slaughter of the offerings were done were identical except that there was a different exit to be taken from the offering, or with the offering for the altar. In the western chambers, there were two identical entry exits in the center of their northern and southern walls. And the entryway to the inner court is through a two-cubit, I think, entryway to a narrow passage to the inner courtyard. In the eastern chambers, there were two doors, but the exit with the slaughtered animal doors were in the inside court corner of the inner courtyard, directly from the slaughter chamber to the altar's inner courtyard. In other words, the Cohen would bring the portion to be offered to the slaughter chamber's corner exit nearest to the altar's ramp, the height of Yah's efficiency for the Kohanim. I assume from the portion of the animal that was not offered would be taken to the cooking chamber that was nearest to the specific slaughter chamber to be cooked for the Kohanim to eat. None of the animals could be left until morning, so I have to assume, rather uh, remember what happens when we assume, it makes an ass out of you and me, um, that every Kohen came to eat, and any leftover had to be burnt in the fire on the altar. I would guess that there was often flesh, bones, fat, and skin to be burnt that were left over from the daily offerings. A burnt or, uh, I'm sorry, a bull or an ox is usually pretty large. But then I'm just a guy who thinks sort of randomly, but always wanting to bring forth the tenor, the general meaning or sense or context of something, of the word of Yah. Verse 12 seems to be saying that Yom on Yom HaKippurim, the cooking chamber used was the one in the southeast corner of the outer courtyard. Why that is, I'm not sure, but that's what it seems to say to me. And that's what I got through verse 12. Okay. Ken, you want to add anything to that, or should we move on? Yeah, I, I can say a few things, and there goes MP again talking about female donkeys. 
Um, <laughs> I won't go there. Um, but I would like to address some of the things that MP was talking about here. Um, because I, I've seen quite a few drawings and I'll tell you, uh, it, it's sort of half and half in terms of, uh, comparing the southern buildings or the buildings south of the set apart place to the buildings north of the set apart place, which Again, the south buildings are that of the Leewites, and the northern buildings are for the Zadokite uh, priesthood, okay? Um, but it, it's interesting because uh, quite a few drawings indicate two different sets of three-level buildings to the north, okay? Two sets, one that is a full uh, 100 cubits, the same as the south building, Okay, so it would mirror the south, but then in front of it, meaning to the north of that building, was a 50 cubit long three level building, kind of facing each other. So the the 100 cubit building is facing the 50 cubit building, and there's a walkway in between. Uh, now there, I believe people are, are getting this from uh, such sections as verse seven where it says that the length thereof is 50 cubits. Um, and also um, there was another place I saw. Now I'm, now I lost it. I had it in my, in my sight. <laughs> and it seems to have been washed away. Oh, anyway, um, <laughs> it, it, it could be one way or the other. It's very hard to tell. Um, but I will say too, that when it speaks of the doors, you notice it says um, over here in in verse 11 and 12 uh, that, these, that these doors, uh, whether it be on the north or the south, it says, well, especially at the end of verse 12, the, the way directly before the wall toward the east as one entereth into them. So it seems to me there is a, a, a door on the east side of both the southern building that's for the Levites and the northern building or buildings, plural, for the Zadokite priesthood, uh, just like that of the set apart place. Remember, that door is also on the east. So it would make sense, I think, that Yah would have them to the east on all all buildings so that they are similar in that way, you know? Um, of course, that would be a long walk then into each of those 100-cubit buildings, right? You, you would start on the on the slim side and walk in and, and walk the length of the building, you know, the 100-cubit length. <laughs> so instead of uh, there being a door maybe in the middle somewhere. Uh, but anyway, so... Um, uh, what else? And, and the, these buildings to the north and to the south were were holy as the temple was. So it appears the priesthoods used these buildings for various uh, procedural things, you know, uh, while they were uh, doing their worship and their um, uh, ministering, okay, uh, and to maintain holy things. I believe that might have to do with objects and um, 
even sacrifices, etc. Because remember, these things were were holy. Um, some of them came, especially what they were eating, came off the altar. So, yeah, these things would even include the eating of the various sacrifices afforded to them and the changing of garments as needed by the various procedures, you know. So normally, of course, when they were wearing something and they had to slaughter, they're going to end up getting blood on their garments. But once that procedure is done and, you know, all all of the uh, sacrificing is done, then, of course, they would most likely uh, wash themselves and then they would don a, um, a possibly a all-white you know, garment or something that's completely clean to show that the blood has been shed, it's been covered, and and now it's been cleansed. And now, of course, the priest comes back uh, as white as snow, so to speak. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cleansed. So, um, and anyway, that's what I have up to about verse 14. Okay, I, I included a little bit. Um, I, I'm not sure how far MC read. Um, I hope I didn't go too far. But oh. That last section I had was through verse 14. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, I'm thinking while you're while you were talking there, uh, Ken, I was thinking that you know the the Cohen is probably going to change garments quite often because he's literally he's slaughtering these animals. Right. And offering them on the on the temple on on the uh, the altar rather, so he's going to have blood all over him every time he does that. So there are going to have to be a whole lot of koanim, right, for every shift, <laughs> and a lot of clothing, <laughs> a lot of garments, yeah, or or maybe a lot of washing going on in the background somewhere. Well, yeah, well there would be there know. would be a lot of washing going on in the background, or a whole <laughs> lot of garment making going on in the background. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that would be the uh, the Zadokite priesthood, right? The ones that, that are ministering to the people. Absolutely correct. And they're ministering to the people, and they're and they're part of that ministry is this uh, this slaughter of the animals, right? Yeah. So that the so that the that blood could atone for those people, right? You no, know, that's 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 the whole point of this thing, and it's not that the that the 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 bulls needed to be killed because they sinned. It's because their sin is being used as substitute for our sins. Like Yeshua became the substitute for our sins. Okay. So they represented him. Yeah. And that's yeah. why all of the tables that were mentioned in this structure were yeah. on the North inner gate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I got Wait, a question, guys, and and we're going to be almost at the at the break here for the bottom of the hour. So here's a question: we've we've actually talked about this for several weeks now. I think one of the things that's been clear is that this does not look like it's happened. Um, we uh, we kind of alluded to it, but I guess I'll say it outright: if there was to be a third temple built, I can't help but think that to whoever it is that's landed out and planning, it's probably reading this and thinking, "Yep, we'll use this as a template." 
That, after all, would make an obvious uh, sense. And certainly there are those that get really bent out of shape saying, no, there shouldn't be. It's not going to happen. Uh, it has to happen because, uh, you know, that's where the abomination of desolation. Lots and lots of argument over this. But I guess if there's anything that kind of sticks out to me, uh, it's, well, it's a question I will ask after the bottom of the hour when we come back. I pray. Don't take me soon, cause I am here for a reason Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down So when negativity surrounds, I know something This is the Torah Teachers Roundtable. We had a short first segment because of a uh, lot of problems, but uh, we're we're on to uh, Chapter 42, a continuation of something we've not been talking about for several weeks. And uh, admittedly, there's a lot of detail in here and a whole lot of things that uh, many of us would kind of almost our eyes glaze over and say, well, lots of information about the inner court, the outer court, the walls, the chambers, the dimensions of this and that, and which parts face east and how you come in and which doorways are where. And um, as uh, MP was talking during the last segment, a lot of information about, uh, you know, where they would perform the slaughtering, and uh, uh, we need places for people to change clothes, because there's going to be a lot of blood, and so forth, and I'm thinking about what um, most of us have heard in uh, Sun God Day School, and what I refer to uh, unabashedly, because he does, including Ezekiel earlier in chapter 23, as the whore church. So many things, in other words, that um, have resulted, the idolatry, and we're going to see it in the next chapter, too, the idolatry that got the both kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, uh, both wives, a whole lot, a whole about. In other words, the whore church and the whore synagogue, all of them kicked out, exiled, sent away for cause, and here we still still are. Now, this is the question. Here's what I'm leading up to, uh, and this is not intended to be flippant at all. But the question is, what's the point? Because here is a discussion about a place, the third temple. Well, maybe this is the place where the abomination is going to be of desolation. We got lots of people arguing about it and saying, "Oh, this shouldn't be built. It's it's an abomination." As I kind of indicated, uh, you know, if there are people in Israel thinking about building a third temple, you got to figure this and the plans, the information here is going to figure high into the 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 template that they're going to probably try to lay out. But regardless, whether it happens, whether it doesn't happen. Um, whether it's right or wrong and, and all the people will argue about it, 
the question again, what's the point? Why does the Creator give us so much information about a temple where maybe there'll be sacrifices, but wait a minute, we've been told there won't be any more sacrifices. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Now, we know that that's not quite true because, in fact, there were sacrifices, there were at least offerings made having to do with the uh, Nazarite vow that Paul and others took after the time of Yeshua. So, you know, a lot of the whole church teaching about that we know is wrong. Um, but, but again, I'll ask it. We'll, we'll go to, we'll go to Ken first. Let him weigh on this. But what's the point of, uh, so much information here if it hasn't happened? And if prophetically it looks like at least there's a description of something, uh, for some reason. Okay. Let me just leave it at that. Go ahead, Ken. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, okay. I, I know I, I, I talked about this a little bit up front. So let me, let me, uh, you know, reiterate just a tad bit here. Uh, that if we're looking at, at the timeline, you know, from the beginning, you know, we, we pretty much have 6,000 years, um, upon this earth, um, with our own rulers. <laughs> uh, which that that takes us all the way up until the second coming of Messiah. There's there's a good picture of that in Zechariah 14. Um, most of that chapter, I believe, is, is is pretty much about that moment when he returns, and that is the beginning, I believe, of the Shabbat millennium. Now, during that Shabbat millennium, if you look, if you read through in detail. Uh, Zechariah 14, you'll see that there is still sin in the world. So those who do not come, it says, and um, to Yerushalayim for the feast of Sukkot, it says uh, they will not have rain in their land. So they're, they're, they're being punished. And of course, punishment or chastisement only comes with sin, right? <laughs> Um, so to me, I believe there is this 1000 year period where, uh, even revelation talks about how, uh, the devil himself is, is, is put away for a thousand years. Um, and I believe that it would be Mashiach being our prince. Okay. Being our, our king on this earth. Um, I believe there's a thousand years where, where he will rule and reign. Okay, but during that period of time, there's still sin in the world. So it seems to me like this uh, temple, Ezekiel's temple, uh, rather it, it fits this scenario because not only does it fit the idea of there being sin still in the world, which is why there's an altar, you know, etc., uh, but also the fact that. Um, there, there's a lot missing from the set apart place, meaning, uh, there should be a lot of people who are perfected there as well. And that's another thing that happens at the beginning of the Shabbat millennium is that, you know, some people are raised up, uh, from, from the dead. Um, others are alive on this earth, but they, they, they raise up to meet him in the clouds and we are given new bodies. So we're, you know, we're, we're made, um, anew, so to speak. We're, we're changed at the twinkling of an eye. 
the blinking of an eye. <laughs> I think it says in either I think it's either First Thessalonians chapter four or First Corinthians chapter fifteen. I think uh, some of this is in both of those chapters. Um, but anyway, that's that's my take on it. So I believe this is a tabernacle that that fits that Shabbat millennium, but but not after the eighth day. You know, after the eighth day, uh, there should be no more sin. That the beginning of the eighth millennium. Uh, so there there may be a change after that. You know, yet another change it is it is the way I would see it. So, how about you, MP? What do you think about it? I think you're probably correct. There, in the eighth millennium, there should, or in anything following the seventh millennium, anyway, should not um, have. There should not be any sin at all. Okay, <laughs> you know, after the after the uh, the, the time of, of Yaakov's trouble and all of that stuff that we read about in Revelation, which is the seventh millennium, basically, um, the, that. Uh, what what happens after that should all be uh, you know I don't know uh, bells and and whistles and oh boy this is great <laughs> there shouldn't be any sin left okay I, yeah I agree so <laughs> I wish I could say I agree but I'm I'm not quite so, so sure you know there's there's a reading at least that suggests to me that there could still be another battle I, if if I had to bet, I would say the way I read scripture that um, it looks like the Battle of Armageddon isn't necessarily World War Three coming up real soon now, thanks to the Biden fear, but um, maybe something at the end of the thousand year period. So uh, I I would at least uh, hold out. There are some readings that would indicate that uh, yeah, it ain't all over at the end of the millennium. That uh, there may be another battle still yet to come. In which case uh, that would mean that not all sin is necessarily done away with. But hey, as Mark likes to say, I could be wrong. And in this case, I kind of hope I am, but I'm not sure. Well, there, there, there is another battle uh, detailed in the book of uh, Revelation uh, after the devil is loosened uh, after his 1,000-year yeah. period. Right. So that's, that's what I'm referring uh, from to. From what I, I understand, uh, he's loosened, and also those uh, that are um, dead but not saved – uh, their resurrection comes at the end of the Sabbath millennium. So to me, the uh, the devil would have full access to all these, you know, raised up dead souls that are not saved. You know, there that's the second resurrection. That's one, that's an interesting take. One I, you don't want to be a part of. <laughs> that's a very interesting take. I hadn't thought about it that way. And, yeah, uh, but they, uh, and yeah, they, they come to to uh, Yerushalayim, don't they? That uh, the holy city that comes down, they they, they be, come to fight against it. Uh, well, they're going to be they're going to be uh, summoned to it as you know for their for their final adjudication, I would think. Right. And exactly. That and that's where Hasatan would uh, take take advantage of their being there, and he would come against. But you know, Yah will just right. Just brush them away, basically. And <laughs> that's kind of how Sorry. it reads I, in Revelation. You guys are done. Get out of here. Go, <laughs> yep. go burn. Go he, burn completely and be gone. It yeah, is, he he grabs them all. There's not going to be a, an eternal hell. I guarantee you that. Right. Yeah. He he throws them in the, in that lake of fire, which I think is a picture of complete exactly. death. You know, gone. Exactly. Yeah. And that'll be that'll be a complete wasting of their of their beings at that point. 
Right. Yeah, he's, uh, Yah is is just, but he is not a he is not a sadist. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> Agreed. How about you, uh, MC? Uh, okay. What's your thoughts on it. Well, I think I, right. I think I've already kind of laid it out. I'm I'm at least open to the idea that um, yeah, there is there's more to this than we see, and that. Um, the very fact that there's so much description of this temple Absolutely. leads me to believe that there's a whole lot of people, you know, and this is what I refer to as the great falling away, too, for a lot of reasons. Hey, beam me up, Scotty. We're not going to be here when it gets ugly. But wait a minute. It's already getting ugly. Ooh, maybe they've lied to us. Maybe there are some uh-huh. other things that we've inherited lies from our fathers. So, And, again, we're going to talk about that if we get there in the uh, the next chapter as well because there are a lot of things, in other words, that um, – the uh, the whore church has been telling us that I think we're gonna we're gonna figure out is not just wrong but uh, ultimately dead wrong. There we go. Okay. Uh, other comments? Yeah. Or? Um, no, just for the rest of the chapter. Got a five or six verses to to cover yet. Okay. Yeah, you could read on if you'd like. All right. Well, let's just go ahead and read it, and then we'll finish up here, and uh, hopefully before the top of the hour, we'll we'll get on to Chapter 43, because that one has some really interesting stuff that I know is going to kind of bear on what we've set up here. So then he said to me, this being the person who is (laughs) is talking to him, um, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyard, are the holy chambers, the set-apart Kadosh chambers, where the priests who approach Yahuwah shall eat the most holy offerings. And notice that word offerings. I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, but I suspect that is um, um, it's not zibach sacrifices, but korban. So they're going to eat the most holy offerings. The grain offering, the sin offering, the chatat, the trespass offering, for the place is kadosh. It's set apart. It's holy. When the Kohanim enter them, they shall not go out of the holy into the outer court, but there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are kadosh. They're set apart. They shall put on other garments, uh, their civis, and then they may approach that um, which is for the people. Now, when he'd finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side with a measuring rod, 500 rods by the measuring uh, rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side. Hey, guess what? 500 rods by the measuring rod. He came around to the west side and measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. He measured it on the four sides, had a wall all around, 500 cubits long, 500 wide, to separate the Kadosh areas from the common. And that ends the chapter. So um, let's see. We went to Ken last time. Let's go to UMP. Did you say me? Yes, I did. Let me go. Um, (laughs) Okay, in verses 13 to 15, the north chambers and the south chambers uh, were identical, and I assume identically furnished for the purpose of preparing the flesh of the offerings for offering. These chambers are for the express purpose of the priest eating the flesh of the animals that had been slaughtered by them, and there will be no cutting up like MC Ken and I sometimes do during the program. I think that the Kohanim consumed all of the slaughtered animals that they could eat and then burnt the rest. It must be utterly consumed, either in the serving Kohanim's bellies or by fire. They they have to be completely consumed. None of the offering may still exist except as ashes 
at the end of their business in the temple that evening. Okay, that's literally how it goes. Now, Azamra has a rather lengthy but important ending. Um, give me about three to five to get through it, <laughs> assuming no interruptions from the peanut gallery, and I'll end with this. The, uh, the Temple Mount is the place from which the officers of the world of Asiya receive, and thus its walls, which set bounds for all the light contained within it, totally a total 500 rods by 500 rods. The rationale of these measure, uh, dimensions is bound up with the fact that all the lights that govern the running of the world work together in complete accord and perfect unison. They all join and become interconnected with each other instead of going each in his own direction. Therefore, nothing is ever executed through kingly power, that is Mahut, that was not commanded by the king, Ze'er Anpin. Okay, uh, who is the tree of life? By the way, the king is the tree of life. Do you get this? They're talking about Yeshua, and they don't even realize it. And they're getting it right. <laughs> so, this is a journey of 500 years. That is why the measure of the Temple Mount is the greatest of all, 500. But it did not spread out any further, for as she, the Malchut, receives, so she gives. The future temple will be superior to the earlier temples. In the first temple, each of the four sides of the Temple Mount was 500 cubits in length, while in the third temple, each side will be 500 rods in length. The use of the rod as the unit of measurement in the third temple is bound up with the fact that it will be built through the revelation of the hidden beginning, the keter, the crown of the king. Okay, the tree of life is wonderfully illustrated in the tree of Sephirot, which can be seen at the end of this study. And I sent you guys a copy, and well, I sent Ken a copy anyway. I haven't got Mark's phone in my uh, phone number in my uh, thing here, so uh, I'll send you one too, Mark. Mark. Anyway, that's what I got through verse 15. If you'd like to uh, take a couple of minutes, uh, Ken, it'll be good. Um, I had commented through 14, so let's go ahead and go to the end, if you would. All right. Well, let me. I've, I've only got a little bit left, so let me do that, and then you can okay. uh, take it from there. Okay. Sure. sure. Uh, verses 15 through 20 measure the outer perimeter of the Temple Mount on the east, north, south, and west sides. Each, since each side was 500 rods, and the angel's measuring rod was six cubits long. Ezekiel 40 and verse 5, the future temple mount will be 3,000 by 3,000 cubits. Thus, the future temple mount will be 36 times larger than the temple mount in the time of the second temple, which was 500 cubits by 500 cubits. The future temple will be huge, with a capital U. And that is pretty much what I got for this chapter. It's massive. It's absolutely massive what's coming to it. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I was, you know, uh, when I was looking at this, I, uh, I went out there. I found, I, I just picked up the first five sites that I came to 
that 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 addressed the um, the length of the Temple Mount. Okay, um, I went to IsraelMyGlory.org, which said that it was 500 cubits square, 875 feet square, <laughs> which. Uh, I, I definitely don't agree with. But anyway, uh, then I, I, I went on, uh, found Reverend Theo G. Soros, Ph.D., University of Chicago. Now, he says one cubit is 18 inches, but it's 500 cubits square. Uh, then I went to BibleStudyTools.com. They also said one cubit equaled 18 inches. And again, they said it was 500 cubits square, or 750 feet. Again, I don't agree with that. Uh, fourthly, uh, templemount.org. They say it's 500 cubits square, 875 feet. Again, I don't agree with that either. And lastly, um, which this one I do agree with. It was called HighTimeToAwake.com. They said that one read equals 11 feet, um, and the read, it was uh, times 500 reads, which that's correct, 500 reads. Now, I'm not sure how they got 11 feet, because uh, that's almost uh, two to one. And really, you know, I think in most cases, most people feel that a cubit is... A f- uh, is a foot and a half, right? More or less. 18 inches. That's Remember, what, that's what I was taught kinds. all through school. So, yeah, probably that's what the deal is. But, yeah. you know, we could also be wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so he, uh, you know, at, at hightimetoawake.com, uh, they think that it's 5,500 feet or just over one mile square. Now, that's That's pretty darn big. Now, now, I'm not sure why the first four I hit, especially considering templemount.org, I thought for sure they'd get it right, uh, since they know, <laughs> they would, you know, know Torah a little bit better than, uh, than most. Um, but yeah, they, they believe, as do most, that it's 500 cubits squared. When it's clear when you read the text in detail that it's 500 reads and not 500 cubits. Um, right. So, which you know, if if multiplying in cubits according to verse forty, chapter forty, verse five, okay, five hundred times six would be three thousand cubits. Now, most sites claim a cubit, like I said, is one and a half foot, and thus I believe the size in feet would be forty five hundred feet square. Now, that isn't too far off from a mile. That's a pretty darn big area, no doubt about it, like uh, MP was pointing out. This is one huge, you know, temple mount. Right. And and uh, um, Ezekiel is making sure in, in these last, really, four or five verses that this is pointed out. It's very clear, you know, that this is the size of the entire structure. All the way around the outside, and remember, this is separating. Okay, the the uh, outer court from 
what's called common, right? Uh, like also if you see at the end of verse 20, to make separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. <laughs> so it's really uh, calling the outer court and everything inside of it as the sanctuary. Well, well, really the whole structure is the sanctuary, but then outside of the sanctuary, outside that outer wall, he's calling the profane place, the, you know, the, the uncommon, or I'm sorry, the common, where everyone is, um, would, would be called common, at least back in those, those right. days, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, um, it, it, he, he's, he's saying here that, that this big measurement is is important in that relation. I thank God I'm breathing. And I right. pray don't take right me back. soon. Cause I am here for a reason. Sometimes in my tears I drown. But I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know something Sometimes I lay under the moon. Welcome to the Torah Teachers Roundtable, Apostolic Edition, with your hosts Rob Miller, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call. We hope you'll find this discussion entertaining, thought-provoking, and that above all, you'll be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself to see if these things be true. All right, we are back, folks. This is the Torah Teachers Roundtable Tanakh edition. We're talking about the book of Ezekiel at this point, and I think we are ready to continue and read on into chapter 43. And uh, this one, I will contend, is a place where we're going to see some of this start to come together. And um, let's see where it goes. It says, after this, afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the Elohim of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision uh, which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Heber, and I fell on my face. And the glory of Yahuwah came up into the temple by way of the gate, which faces toward the east. Then the Ruach, the Spirit, lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of Yahuwah filled the temple. And um, I'll read one more verse and we'll pause. That's a good place to stop. Then it says, I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And we'll talk about what he said in just a minute. But uh, let's go to Ken this time. Let him introduce it and uh, uh, see what you uh, what you make of those first ones and what we've got coming up here. All righty. Um, let me make sure I got this right. You read through verse 6. 6. Oh, six. Good. Okay, so I'm just gonna 
pull this up to verse <clears throat> verse five. Um, Ezekiel is brought to the point in time when Yah comes from afar to the temple with, of course, great glory at his presence. <laughs> when when would it not be glorious? Huh? Um, and as he is our living water, he sounded to Ezekiel like the flowing of many waters. And, of course, he came from the east and went straight into his temple. And it says his glory filled the house. Now, one thing I think is is rather cool <laughs> is I think typical, you know, Yah um, doesn't build things for nothing. He doesn't build things only for mankind, but for himself as well. I'm, I have no doubt he went through both eastern gates, the east gate on the outside wall, and then he would have went through the east gate on the inner court as well. Um, I don't believe it would have been like, for example, like we've seen in many movies of uh, the Pesach, the Passover in Mitzrayim or Egypt, Back in the days of the Egyptians and uh, Yisrael was under bondage under them. You know, and you had uh, Yah coming through his spirit, uh, you know, rolling over buildings and over this and over that and, and going in here and there and everywhere, you know, going through windows, going through doors, uh, just kind of like floating all over the place. I don't believe it's like that. I believe he walks straight just as he expects us to walk straight. <laughs> I believe he walks straight westward through the one gate, through the second gate. He went through the door of the house, and then he arrived, and it says he filled the house. Okay? That word that word filled is the word malay, which or mala, which is uh, translated as many words, sometimes full, sometimes Fill, filled, and a more, I think, important word to consider is it's also translated often as the word fulfilled. Because I know sometimes, especially in the Brit Hadashah or New New Testament, we tend to um, throw a, a slightly twisted understanding of the word fulfilled in the uh, in the New Testament where uh, some Christian denominations feel that Mashiach, or Messiah, came and he fulfilled, meaning he finished it and he did away with it. And that is not <laughs> what this word means. <laughs> it really means to bring to fullness, you know. But, to but, make but you've got to make the doctrine fit, and it's it the full. only way to make the doctrine fit that he did away with it. You have to claim that it doesn't mean what it says it means. Well, I think this is a good place to start learning this word because, boy, isn't this a good example. I mean, in one's head. You know, he goes in and he fills the house with his spirit. Amen. Yeah, he brings himself to fullness amongst everything that's in there, including... Any individuals who are in there, I'm sure. 
Exactly. Even the individuals that are in there <laughs> yeah. are in, literally in, his spirit at that point. Oh, man, yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> Woo! Boy, they probably start dancing, you know? Yeah. Dancing and... Yeah, yeah who, even who I would dance. <laughs> I'm not a dancer. <laughs> yeah, but you might learn right quick. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, I yeah, fall I, down a lot when I try to dance. <laughs> right. uh, but anyway, I, I think this is probably a, a good place to start um, uh, considering uh, what Yah expects us to understand of this word, um, male, uh, when he fills something. Yeah, it, it is fulfilled, but it is fulfilled as in it's brought to a fullness. And this is how he is. Okay. <laughs> is he not? When he does something, it is grandioso. It is all-encompassing. You know, it's absolutely complete. That's correct. Yeah, he doesn't halfway anything. <laughs> he's he's all about completion and and uh, doing things. You know, of course, the way he wants, but uh, that's just the way he is. And uh, I think it's uh, a wonderful example um, of what it would be like him coming through from the east to the west and and then making sure that wherever he stops and arrives that he is he becomes one with everything and everyone there you know uh, we i think um we would be filled with his spirit of course if we were there and he shows up we we would truly be a chad with him absolutely with no doubt about it and um I think we're going to understand that even more later on when we see uh, towards the end of the uh, words regarding this temple. We're going to see a little bit more that kind of uh, so-called fulfills uh, this whole, whole whole idea of this temple. So I'll I'll stop there at verse five and see if uh, maybe MP has something to throw in. I got a little bit to throw in. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and I think we're probably just going to agree. Anyway, <laughs> Yechezkel describes another vision from Yah, one that comes hard on the heels of the previous one. He may not have had enough time to roll over or even to take a breath. That's how quickly they hit. Azamra opens with this, and Azamra has a lot of good commentary on chapters 43 and 44, in case you're looking. Um, they said this, Then... KJV says afterward, he brought me to the gate and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. That's verse one. At the conclusion of Ezekiel's virtual tour around the future temple in order to learn its form and measurements after completing measuring, completing measuring the temple mount, the angel who was his guide brought him back to the east gate of the mount where the prophets saw the glory of Elohim approaching in order to enter the completed temple. The glory of Elohim saw that thing, and he wanted it in there right away. Okay, so, yeah, how do you picture the glory of Elohim? As Mashiach HaMelech in his resurrected flesh? That's how I picture him. Okay? What can be more glorious than resurrection under one's own power? approaches the temple from the east 
perhaps from the Mount of Olives, and the future Garden of Gethsemane. Would that not bring crucifixion and resurrection to to your mind if you were Yeshua on his approach to this future temple in Yechezkel's day? It would me. The Hebrew behind the English word translated the east is Hakadim. The Hebrew seems to personify the gate that looks as if it is itself alive toward the east. Okay, now is the gate itself alive? No, but that's what this picture is trying to tell us. It It can actually see. The Hebrew seems to personify the gate that looks as if it is itself alive. Now toward the east. Azamra again on verse 1. With this, Ezekiel's prophecy has come full circle because at the beginning of his ministry, he witnessed the glory in chapter 1, only to see it depart and its place above the ark in the first temple, or rather from its place in the first temple, and leave stage by stage until it ascended to heaven for the duration of the exile. That's in chapter 9 and verse Uh, verse 3 and following. That was when Ezekiel prophesied the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the time of Zedekiah. Uh, And it it says, Ibid, also check, chapter 9 and verse 1 and following. Now, verse 2. In verse 2, HaKavod le'Elohim le'Israel, the glory of the God of Israel, came from Derek Hakadim, Okay, the way of the east. Now, I do not think that the first thing that Zeke experienced was the visual, but the audible of Yah. Zeke heard him coming long before he actually saw the manifestation of Yah's glory. I could be... I could be mistaken, but I seriously doubt it. Yah was trying to make this impression on Zeke's audience. He wasn't worried in the least about Zeke. Zeke was thoroughly convinced of the power and majesty of Yah Yeshua. If you read this account with a completely open mind and with a good to better than average understanding of what Zeke is writing here, you will be every bit as convinced that he, that is Ezekiel, was carried not just to the east, but to the end of days with Yah Yeshua coming from the rising of the sun to sit on the throne that he earned by doing what no one else could, dying all of our deaths for us all on his tree on Gethsemane. He created it all. He redeemed it all by substituting for each and all of us on his torture stake. And I think Zeke was convinced of that as well. That's what I have for verses 1 and 2. Uh, I can move on, but uh, I'd rather not at this particular point. You like to take a little bit more, Ken? (laughs) Well, you have to catch up to me, bro. Oh, man. (laughs) I made it through verse 5. Oh, man. All right. I'll give it a shot. I'll I'll, I'll try it. I'll go to verse 5 as well. Uh, Do you remember in verses 3 through 6, when Zeke came to Jerusalem to destroy the city? Yeah. I don't either. He came and pronounced judgment numerous times, but he did not physically destroy anything. He may have had power to damage it, but not to utterly destroy it. 
TSK has this to say about that. This is Treasury Scripture Knowledge. Or to prophesy that the city was to be destroyed. That's basically what we're talking about here. In verse 3, And I will give unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4 through 6. In Revelation chapter 11, I'm sorry. should have told you that. Revelation chapter 11, 3 through 6. Um, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before Elohim of Israel. And in, if any man will hurt them, okay, that is the two candlesticks or the two olive trees, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. That again is Re uh, Revelation 11, 3 through 6. Do you understand, you do understand, don't you, that in the end of days, the book of Revelation, which MC Rob Miller and I treated four or five years ago on TTRT, Yerushalayim will be the seat of anti-Mashiach's kingdom. And if our figuring isn't completely off base, that time is just around the corner from us right now. I'm looking forward to the new heavens and earth. I'm just not enthused about living through the stuff we're going to have to live through to get there, which is, well, by the way, already underway, I think. Um, it won't, will not be pretty. Okay, all right. The two olives, the two olive trees, the candlesticks standing before Yah Yeshua Hamelech, are in I think Abraham or Moshe, and perhaps Koresh, king of Persia, who was not certainly but arguably the quintessential convert king over Yehuda Israel. I don't think any true ortho rabbi would have a problem with Koresh, okay, Cyrus being one of the two candlesticks in the government of Israel. He was a, he was a true convert to, to uh, uh, Yehudism. Now, do you see in verse 6 that the two candlesticks... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. I'll, uh, I'll do verse 6 on the other side. Okay, the word there is menorah, is it not, MP? Just so we're clear. Or, or the plural of menorah. I'm sorry, say that again? The word there is not really candlesticks, it's really menorah in the Hebrew, correct? Yes, it is menorot. Right. Okay, good. It's plural of menorah. Menorot. All right, just want to make sure everybody yeah. understood that. I, that's what I think. I'm going to I'm going to make absolutely certain of that in just a I'm sorry, where where was that word? Um, menorah? Yes. Uh, it's a candlestick. I mean, where where is it? Which verse? Uh, verse 5, I think it was or 6? Really? That's why I was asking in part. Yeah, because I didn't see it. Uh, MP read it several times. <clears throat> oh. Uh. Yeah, I did. I did. I was likening it to two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth is uh, where I was coming from in uh, Revelation 11, 3 through 6. Okay, so That's we don't have the Hebrew there. All we have is the Greek, yeah. even though we know he spoke uh, Hebrew. Yeah. All righty. So, yeah, we... We would need to read on to about at least verse 9, MC. Okay. So let's see here. 
I went back. So he's uh, getting ready to hear what he said to me, verse 7. Uh, he said to me, quote, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the Benai Israel, or the children of Israel, forever. No more shall bait Israel, the house of Israel, defy my set-apart, my holy, my Kadosh name, uh, they nor their kings by their harlotry, or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold to my, by my threshold, and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my set-apart, my holy name, by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. So let's pause and understand what he's saying here. They did a bunch of things that, uh, gee, sound like the whore church has been doing all this time, and he consumed them, he says, in my anger. Now, let them put their harlotry oh, yeah. and the carcasses of their kings far away from me. I wonder if that includes Biden viewers and fake kings, too, and those who are uh, literally destroying him, his people and standing with his adversaries. So let them put the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Ha'olam. Son of man, he says, describe the temple to Beit Israel, the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their Torahlessness, their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. Now, I'm going to read one more verse, and we'll pause here. I'll go to UMP. But I think this is part of what we've been setting up for. It's part of why I asked the questions about uh, what's the point here. And this, at least, is part of the point. He says, um, let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed, that's interesting, if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all the forms and all of its Torot. That's the Hebrew word there. Laws is, um, laws is kind of a diminishment of what he really says. His Torot means his instruction, which is a lot more than just statutes, judgments, and commandments. All of the forms and all of its uh, Torot. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep the whole design and all of its ordinances and perform them. So let me read the next verse. I, I said I was going to read one more verse. We've got just about a minute. I know Ken gets upset when I go to him. I'm, I'm going to do it with you, Mark. you got about a minute here when I finish this last uh, verse. <laughs> this is Torot. Go ahead, read 12. Torot Habait, this is the instruction of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most kadosh. Behold, this is the Torah Habait, the Torah of the temple. All right, go ahead, MP. Now, you got a little more than a minute, okay. so I uh, I didn't shortchange you. Yeah, you did, but that's okay. <laughs> Do you see in verse 6 that the two candlesticks have the power to turn the water in rebellious areas and lands, into blood, and to smite the earth with plagues. And that, whenever they get an inkling to do so, okay, they they, they just get the, a, 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 a feeling on a whim, <laughs> they can do it. I think we may be seeing some of this happening either now or very soon as well in, in our own lives. Most of the major plagues that we've endured over the last 20 to 50 years have been a result of genetic research or just attempting to make even worse plagues than Hitler and his henchmen could devise. COVID was definitely developed in a laboratory in the Wuhan China lab, and it is able to mutate on its own. 
and the so-called vaccines make it worse. I'm broadcasting this over the radio and online as I speak. Are you listening, all you guys out there that want to want to stop us from saying this? You're not going to stop me. I never got and I never will take the poison poke. I will not allow my lovely bride to get the poison poke. I got COVID-19 in late December of 2019. Or perhaps it was just a bad respiratory infection and the COVID swab was a fake too. I don't know. Can you tell that I don't trust the PTB as far as I can pick up their bloated butts and throw them? Waste of skin. And in my opinion, Fauci is a monster. Read Uh, JFK's book on that subject. And if you are a Democrat, vote for him, JFK Jr. I will be changing my registration so that I can vote for him in the next year's primary. If he isn't assassinated before then. Enough politics for now. Just wait. But I digress. Back to the king, Mashiach, and his temple. But that's in verse 7. So I'm going to let Ken have a minute or two. Um, okay. Not quite, but go ahead, Ken. Oh, okay. Well, 6 through 9, Yah spoke to Ezekiel in this vision out of the house while a man was standing by him. He told Ezekiel how this would be the place where he would dwell amongst his people. Amen. And his people would never again commit whoredoms. And thus Yah would dwell with them and amongst them forever. Right? Yep. Forever. <laughs> there you go. Forever. <laughs> yeah, Rob. I'm being the, the, the imposter. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, we're going to have to uh, take a break, and then we'll pick it up after the break. And I pray, don't take me soon, because I am here for reasons. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know someday the Lord turns around because Our back, folks, final segment for today. We're talking about Chapter 43 at this point, and essentially whether or not the whore church and the whore synagogue, but uh, all of Israel ultimately that has been uh, at the point of the prophecy we're talking about anyway, uh, hopefully ashamed of what it's been up to, um, we'll get there, I guess. Let me uh, let me ask the question. Uh, were you finished, uh, Ken, when, when the break came or not? 
No, I was not finished. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so yeah, I was commenting on uh, verses six through nine, uh, saying how dwell would Yah would dwell with them forever. I, I think it's really cool how how he gives us some of these uh, physical representations, such as the soles of his feet. They are there in that throne area, which you know the soles of his feet would definitely indicate that that he's going to keep them right there. He's not going to walk away. <laughs> His feet will stay right there, and then the children of Israel will be there with him. It says in verse 7, I will dwell. That's the word shakan, by the way. So here's the shakinah, right, as some of them say. Yep. I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. That word midst is... uh Tavek, which, you know, often it's it's written this way in the Hebrew. But that word Tavek also means in. So I believe his spirit will be in us forever at that point. He will be in us forever. We will be in him. We will be Echad, you know. Uh, and, and, of course, never again would they um, uh, defile his name, which... Again, that has to do with authority. They will respect him forever at this point. So his name or his authority will not be defiled ever again. Uh, because all those that caused the, the defiling, which that's why he's talking about kings and, and, you know, those who were in, in power, they, they've all been done away with. Um, the whoredom has been, Put away, it says in verse 9. <laughs> uh, and that's the word rakak. So rakak truly does mean to remove it. You know, it is gone. Okay. Now, I, gone. I'm not sure, Ken, that it's yeah. actually it, – it doesn't say that it has been done away with. The tense is interesting here. It says, now let them put away their harlotry and the carcasses of the kings, and I will dwell in their midst forever. So it sounds like it's still a um, – hey, you still got something to do at this point. Yeah, some some are going to be, as far as I can tell, coming in from the profane place, right? Coming in through a gate, and we'll come to the altar, and we'll attempt to walk perfectly, you know, and we'll uh, bring their offerings, etc. But see, there are others, like I mentioned, who should be given their new bodies at this point, I believe. And again, I, I think that's why what's in the set-apart places is, is changed, okay? I don't think there is a need for a lid of atonement anymore, okay? Because that was a that was a separator between him and the hearts of his people. But now that's gone. So, again, I believe this is where they can be one in, in his dwelling place, you know? Um so there is a huge difference. We can't just look at, at previous temples and think, oh, this is just like that. It, it's definitely not. <laughs> you know, there is a big change here. Um, and, and what does, what does he then go on to tell Ezekiel in 10 through 12 is about showing 
this wonderful house to the whole house of Israel to measure the pattern of it and thus be ashamed of their iniquities. So, yeah, we it has a lot of physical aspects, but I, I, I believe this is a representation of something more spiritual. And, and it's really going to hit home when they when they see these measurements, they see how things are laid out, and it's going to be like a ton of bricks on their hearts to say, oh, I have sinned greatly, and, it's, and they're going to be so ashamed of everything of their past. You know? And with this shame, they will be shown the form and Torah of this house. That they may, it says, keep, the word shamar, keep and do, asa. <laughs> Remember, this is from one of my favorite verses, Deborim chapter 5, verse 1. Um, after they learn, they then keep, and then they do. So here, of course, they have already learned, so from now on, they're going to keep and they're going to do everything of his, all Torah. So this is the Torah of the house, and it is most holy. And this house, I believe, is that tabernacle that Mashiach is the cornerstone. We are all the other stones. We're all one big tabernacle or house, you know, most holy. And he states this twice in verse 12, that this is the Torah of the house. So he, he must mean it. He must be saying it twice for a really good, a good reason. Just like I see he also says it says twice the words i will dwell in them forever or in the midst of them forever okay he says that first up in verse seven and then he repeats it again word for word in verse nine and when of course when he doubles up on things like this he really wants us to hear you know hear and from then on do like let it come out of you out from your heart so that you may do it. And that's what keeping really means, is to really put it inside you and in your heart, that you may do everything that you're putting in your heart. It's really showing the love you have for his Torah. When you put it in your heart, that means you love it. <laughs> and you want to you do it forever. <laughs> yeah. You got that right. Yeah. So, oh, man, I... Uh, this is certainly, I think, a a beautiful moment. Even though, yes, we're gonna we're gonna be ashamed. There's there's iniquities that are remembered, and yes, there's talk like MC mentioned about how things are done away with. Um, but again, I think uh, this is laid out, and we're gonna see it here. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but we're going to see more in the next one chapter or so that's going to show us that this is not like the previous uh, tabernacles to where just anybody can come and go. Oh, no, no, no. There will be literally, we're going to see nobody coming and going, at least by themselves the way I see it. But we'll, we'll, We'll touch on that when we get there. So let me uh, let me just stop there at verse twelve. I think that's where MC read to, right? That's about correct. Yeah, yeah. we spoke through. Okay, well, yeah, I'll stop there. Go ahead, MP. I believe so, and I'm up. So here we go. 
These verses, verses 7 to 12, they show us how the anti-Zeke false prophets work. Okay, now here's Azamra's take on verses 5 through 9. Okay, because that's about half of what we're going to cover here. Anyway, now following all of his intervening prophecies, and after having seen the perfect form of the future temple and all of its details, a spirit comes and lifts Ezekiel to the inner courtyard, where he sees that the glory of Hashem fills the house again, in verse 5. God promises that this will be his dwelling place among the children of Israel forever. Thank you, Rob. For they are, they will be fully rectified and will no longer engage in the abominations practiced in the, ti- at the, in the time of the first temple. When kings like Menashe and Ammon um, were buried in the gardens of their palaces adjacent to the temple, and idolatry was practiced at their tombs. That, according to verses 7 through 8, and, and uh, this is, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm quoting Azamra, and they'd say, see Rashi, Metsudas, David, and Radak uh, on those things. Now, Elohim promises that from now on, they will reject their old pathways so that Elohim will dwell among them forever. Verse 9. Now, the beast spoken of in verse 7, may, that was, by the way, the end of Zamra's commentary. The beast spoken of in verse 7 may be the anti-Mashiach who will take power with Hasatan's assistance, I'm sure, and make war against those believers who enter the anti-Mashiach's power years, which will be most since there will be no pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, that was has always been a pipe dream with absolutely no basis in scripture fact. We will go through the trip through the trip time if we live to see it. Okay, trib time I should say, not trip. Okay, there will be surely as many martyrs then as there were all throughout the history of Israel, especially considering the much larger population today than in those days. There are very few people groups as hated as Israel is hated, of which we at HNR, and I hope our listeners, are a part, Israel, part of Israel. Okay, now, in uh, they, will dis- they will distance their promiscuous idolatry with the corpses of their kings from me, that I may dwell forever among them. Okay, and that is from uh, Stones Tanakh. And they have this comment on verse 9. Because of the large perimeter of the sacred temple mount enclosure surrounding the temple, okay, they will, they will dwell among them forever. Now, verses 10, on verse 10, rather, Azamra's commentary is this. You, son of man, describe the house of Israel, the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the form of the house. That's in verse 10. It's through teshuvah, repentance, that Israel is worthy of seeing this temple. Shame over one's uh, improper behavior before Elohim is the very root of true repentance. Thus, the Hebrew letters of the last, of the first word of the Torah, Bereshit, make up the words Yore Boshes, okay, awe and shame. That's from Tikkune Zohar. 
Now, when Israel begins to glimpse the form of the future temple, they will become ashamed of their deeds. And as their shame matures into even deeper teshuvah, they will be able to learn the form of the house in order to build it. The Midrash tells, they say this, Ezekiel said to the Holy One, blessed be he, Master of the world, we are now in exile, and you tell me to go and inform the Jewish people about the plan of the temple? Write it before their eyes, and they will guard all its forms and all its laws to do them. How can they do them? And that, by the way, was Yah's answer. How can they do them? Leave them until they go out of exile, and then I will tell them. That's what Yah says. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Ezekiel, Just because my people are in exile, does that mean that the building of my house should be halted? Studying the plan of the temple in the Torah is as great as actually building it. Go and tell them to make it their business to study the form of the temple as explained in the Torah. As their reward for this study, I will give them credit as if they actually were building the temple. That according to Midrash Tanhuma, and I don't know how true that is, but uh, okay, that's yeah, I was going to point said. that out. This it's, is, I think, it's kind of cool. Yeah, but this is one of those places. I always get a little suspicious, MP, when I hear entire conversations that uh, supposedly happened that uh, didn't happen, or at least uh, they tell us that they happened in the oral tradition, but we we can't certainly prove them. So uh, again. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but um, color me skeptical about drawing too much in the way of, of conclusions from it. I hear you. Okay, now, yeah, listen, listen up. I don't quite buy that, but it is wise to be prepared to do the actual gathering of the supplies and building of the temple. In the old days, it may not have been wise. But with our building and climate control practices now, there's no reason, no reason whatsoever, to not be gathering and storing them for future use. Okay, that's what I got through verse 12. Okay, uh, Ken, how about you? Anything? I guess we need to read on. All right. I've finished through 12. Um, so, these, it says, are the measurements of the altar. In cubits, the cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth. So this sounds like a royal cubit. It's a little bit bigger, probably bigger than 18 inches. The base one cubit high and one cubit wide, with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two uh, two cubits. The width of the ledge one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge four cubits, and the width of the ledge one cubit. The altar. Hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, four, and our square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a room of half a cubit around it, its base, one cubit all around, and its steps toward the east. So uh, let's pause there. Um, Ken, let's go to you first. We're uh, probably not going to finish the chapter today, but um, we can at least talk about the altar part. All righty. I, um, I, it's kind of hard to talk about this one. It's just so straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I get it that the size of the altar is detailed here. It does appear to be quite big. And like the <laughs> altar of old, 
It has horns on every corner. Yep. It is 12 by 12 cubits. If considering one cubit equals one and a half foot, it'd be approximately 108 feet square for the size of the top of the altar. The, um, the lower section of the altar is larger, which is called the settle. It says it is 14 by 14 cubits or 126 square feet. But it says with stairs to the east. So again, directional or directions are very important. <laughs> you know, we're not going to come from the north or the south. Certainly not from the west. We're always going to come from the east to go to the altar. Um, so I, I think there's significance to that. Uh, and, and the fact that there is an altar says uh, certainly that there is still sin because that's what the altar is all about, right? Uh, there, there must still be sin in the world. So, again, uh, this this temple uh, structure uh, would be or could be good through the end of the Sabbath millennium. Uh, but after that, there's certainly parts of it that would no longer be needed, such as the altar, <laughs> you know, um, unless, of course, we're going to. Well, no, I don't, I don't even think we need to do the physical anymore. At that point, I mean, at the eighth millennium. Um, but I, I do believe that at the beginning of the seventh millennium, which is when, um, as I see scripture, Yahushua returns, um, that even then in four, four thousand years, there is still sin according to Zechariah 14. Um, so, uh, this would this would fit in yes. any case still <clears throat> even even with this altar uh, and really that's <laughs> that's uh, about all I have for the altar I, I do know that it's it would have to be cleansed at its first use as well you know so there'd be some sprinkling of the blood and putting some uh, blood in in these little um, on the the four horns of the altar on the corners. But um, that's that's about all I have for the for the altar. Okay. I'd like to go for it, MP. Yeah, I'll go for it. I got a few minutes here. Just three. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna share what I got here from uh, from Azamra because they're pretty sharp about this kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, only after the completion of his main tour of the house, and after witnessing the return of God's glory that Ezekiel see the form of the altar. This is because the altar is itself a manifestation of Elohim's glory. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a physical manifestation of Elohim's glory. The place of the altar is most precisely aligned, and its place may not be changed forever. <laughs> it was in this place in the temple that Yitzhak, our father, was bound. This is the... This is where the where the Akeda happened, okay? Where Abraham um, bound his son and was lifted up the knife as if to kill him. He was going to kill his son, and that's when Yah stopped him. Wait a minute, 
okay, I believe you now. I believe that you are what you think, what you tell me you are. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, it was in this place, <clears throat> in the temple, that Yitzhak, our father, was bound. It is a tradition in everyone's hand that the place where David and Shlomo built the altar in the threshing floor of Aravna was the place where Abraham built the altar and bound Yitzhak. And that is the place where Noah sacrificed when he came out of the ark. And this is the altar upon which Cain and Abel offered. And there Adam sacrificed after he was created. And from there he was created. Okay? This is all from Azamra and the sages. Now our sages said that Adam was created at the place where he gains atonement. The dimensions of the altar are very precisely aligned, and its form is known by tradition from one man to another. The altar that the returning Babylonian exiles built was in the form in which the future altar will be built, and it is not permitted to add to or subtract from its measurements. That according to Rambam in Laws of the Temple 2, verses 1 to 3. And uh, the form of the altar is explained by Rambam uh, on the basis of Mishnah Midos 3.1 and is discussed in relation to our present text in Talmud Eruvin and Menachos 95a, 97a rather. Okay, now in the words of Ramchal, the altar provides a place for all who need to ascend it, ascend on it. The total height of the altar is 10 cubits built on three distinct levels. The height of the top level is four cubits, as is that of the second or middle level, while the third or bottom level is two cubits high. This is because there is a place there or here for all the palaces of the world of Beriah according to their order of ascent. The top four cubits correspond to Keter, the crown, Chochmah, um, I've lost it, wisdom, and Bina, uh, judgment, in the palace known as the Holy of Holies, together with desire, that is Tiferet, which ascends higher than all the others. The middle four cubits correspond to Chesed, Geberah, and Netzach, and Hod. Okay, well, that takes us to the break. We'll uh, pick it up there next time. Thanks, guys.